Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, hear now the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. My original plan had been to go from Leviticus to Samuel Kings, but, uh, well, there's actually lots of good reasons for that, which we'll see when we get to Samuel Kings. Uh, I figured that since we're also doing a psalm series in the morning, uh, it's been a while since we've had a New Testament series, so I figured let's go to Philippians. Uh, and uh, there's, a, in, in a sense, the, the church in Philippi is a... Uh, Unlike many of Paul's epistles, you know, like he's not writing to a church like in Corinth where they are fractured beyond belief and there's all sorts of divisions here and there. It's, it's, there's no major heresy like in Galatians. The church in Philippi has all the ordinary problems. Yeah, they have their share of personal, personal conflicts. Iodia and Syntyche we'll, we'll hear about later. They face plenty of dangers. Paul cautions them against the Judaizers. But... Paul's central concern in this epistle is to urge the church to make progress in their faith. That's basically the point. He's, he's, he's writing a thank you letter for the gifts that they've sent him, uh, and he's just simply encouraging them to continue on and make progress in their faith, hope, and love as they walk before God. One commentator says it well, the world is too perilous and the gospel too glorious for them to be content with past achievements. If we ever get complacent in where we are in Christ, then we're not where we should be. We must always, as Paul will say, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And so this gives us an opportunity as we go through Philippians to to reflect on and to encourage one another in growing in our own discipleship, in pressing on toward that mark. Now, Paul and Timothy write this epistle. Um, it's, it's, worth, it's worth noting that this letter is it's not just Paul, it's Paul and Timothy. Um, I think we usually just talk about the Pauline epistles as though Paul wrote them all. Uh, and you know, sometimes... Scholars debate over whether Paul really wrote all the Pauline epistles. Well, uh, newsflash, Paul says he didn't. Um, Timothy had a significant role in writing this epistle. 
Now, what does that mean? Good question. I mean, did Timothy write the first draft and then Paul came along and said, yeah, let's, or did, or were they, I mean, if you think about the way letters get written in those days, they're usually dictated. Um, and it's really, it, you, you, mean, you start doing thought experiments, you're like, Paul and Timothy. Does that mean that Paul and Timothy were sitting there with, their, with the amanuensis and sort of, and, and, and Paul's maybe, Paul's dictating and, and Timothy's like, hey, what about this? We don't know. What we do know is that if, if Timothy was just sort of one of Paul's sort of colleagues who really didn't have anything to do with writing it, Timothy would get mentioned at the end of the epistle when Paul mentions all of his colleagues who didn't have anything to do with writing the epistle. So, that, so all we know is that Timothy should not be ignored when we talk about the author of, of the epistle. Now, um, having said that, I will also do what Paul does in this epistle because Paul will generally use the first person singular. And so from here on out, I will do what Paul does and ignore Timothy. Sorry, Timothy. Um, but occasionally, I will, I will remind you, you know, yeah, Paul and Timothy write this, but, uh, but Timothy gets, I mean, he gets mentioned right up front. So that's why I'm mentioning him right up front. Now, the, the standard Greek letter opens with three words. The name of the sender, the name of the recipient, and the word kairain, greeting. So if Paul were writing a, a standard Greek letter, he would have written Paulos uh, Philippois Kyrene. Three words, Paul to the Philippians, greetings. There are thousands of ancient letters in Greek language that begin this way. Paul to the Philippians, greetings. Now, the pattern could be expanded to give more precision or often to flatter the recipient, but the basic Greek pattern is seen in the way that Paul opens it, but it's transformed in, in three distinctive ways. Because first, he says Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Uh, here and in Romans and in Titus, uh, Paul uses this phrase in the greeting. And it's, it's not the word diakonos, which would have the idea of a minister or agent. Rather, this is the word doulos, which means slave or bondservant. Isaiah had spoken of the servant of the Lord, which was translated the doulos of the Lord. So when Paul is saying that they are servants of Christ Jesus, he's emphasizing Christ Jesus is our only master. So when we are writing as douloi, when we are writing as slaves of Christ Jesus, servants of Christ Jesus, we, we, they are, Paul, Paul and Timothy are saying, we are servant leaders, we are servants of Christ Jesus, we are, but we are also, by using that term douloi, he is connecting that to the, just as the suffering servant died for his people, Paul will also talk about his suffering on behalf of the church, by no means saying it's equal to that of Christ, but saying that, calling his people to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And then secondly, the Philippian church is further identified as being holy in Christ Jesus. The doctrinal theme, the teaching of Philippians is sanctification. So it's fitting that Paul begins by reminding them that they are already holy. They are already saints in Christ Jesus. By virtue of their union with Christ, they have been set apart as holy to God. The... There's a, very real way in which 
the, as Paul says over and over again, that we have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are now holy in Christ. And so he, he speaks to the Philippians and identifies them as saints, as holy in Christ Jesus. Now, who, who are these Philippians? Who's he, who's he writing to? Uh, and if you flip back over to Acts chapter 16, we, we hear about who these Philippians are. And that's where, as with most of Paul's epistles, uh, you hear about the background in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 16, we hear both of Paul and of Timothy as Timothy first came into Paul's traveling presbytery. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, we hear that Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So in other words, here's this, this is right after chapter 15, where the Jerusalem Council has said that that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. But Timothy has a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and so Paul does, immediately after the Jerusalem Council, circumcise somebody with Jewish ancestry. So it's worth noting, Paul is saying, hey, you're, because you're Jewish, you should be circumcised. If you were just a Gentile, you shouldn't be. But So... Timothy gets circumcised, uh, and then um, as they went on their way to the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So basically saying, Jews, and, and he's taking Timothy along with him, saying, hey, Timothy, who's Jewish, he got circumcised, don't worry. But you know, he's also got Luke with him, who, and Luke is a Gentile, and Luke has not been circumcised. And so now you got, you, you, they, get, they get to sort of demonstrate before the churches, here's the pattern, here's the practice. Jews may get circumcised, Gentiles don't have to. Then in verses 6 through 10 of Acts 16, we hear of Paul's call to Macedonia, which was the region where the city of Philippi is located. And they... Uh, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Uh, Asia is not what we now call the continent of Asia. Asia is a Roman province in what's now modern-day Turkey. And what it means that the Holy Spirit forbade them, to, I mean, good question. Um, but what's clear is there's no door opened for preaching the gospel in that province. So when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. One of those basic lessons when you're when you've been trying when you've been trying to follow Christ and sort of do what He's called you to do, and nothing's working, and then you have you, the, a, a door opens, yeah, go through that door. And here the door opens through a vision. I mean, this is where this is this is not this is not saying ah sort of sort of if you're just sort of randomly floating along your own path, uh, you should expect to have visions telling you what to do. But it's that it's it's that when you are following Christ and you are doing what Christ calls you to do, sometimes there are remarkable ways that God will sort of make clear what you should be doing next. And it's, that's just 
it happens. Um, but it's, it's if, if we're pursuing our own paths, don't trust visions. Because <laughs> they're just as likely to be something that you made up or somebody else who's not so well disposed to you. <clears throat> there are demonic visions too. So make, be careful what voices you're listening to. But setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Uh, Philippi being a Roman colony gives it special privileges in the Roman Empire and, uh, and much that happens in the city of Philippi in, the, in Acts 16 is relevant to that. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Uh, this suggests there's, uh, there's no synagogue in Philippi, but where there's, no, where there's no synagogue, there will be oftentimes a place of prayer. And so, they'll, so Paul, you know, he, he supposes, well, this, this is what the Jews do when they don't have enough people for a synagogue. And so he supposes where to find them. Sure enough, that's where they are. There's a common practice in the Jewish world. And they, they sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You can actually hear, hear echoes of what Jesus had told his disciples, that sort of when you go to a city, sort of find, find, find a person who's favorable, sort of stay with them. This is what happens, and this is what they do. Now, the rest of chapter 16 tells us about the conversion of the Philippian jailer and how Paul was forced to leave Philippi after some days in the city. Uh, in fact, in chapter 16, um, there's a shift in pronouns from we in chapter 15 to they in chapter 17, which makes it seem clear that Luke was left behind in Philippi to continue the work. When Paul, when, when Paul is sort of forced out through the circumstances surrounding the, the conversion of the Philippian jailer, um, it looks like he leaves Luke behind in order to continue shepherding the disciples and, and uh, building the church there. And it was no doubt through this connection that the Philippian church continued to support Paul's ministry through financial assistance. Uh, we know from Acts, as well as from Philippians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11, that the Philippians gave sacrificially to support the work of the apostle and also to aid those who were suffering in Jerusalem. Uh, now, the Philippians were not wealthy, so Paul did not ask them for money for Jerusalem, uh, but... In 2 Corinthians 8, he comments to the Corinthians. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Philippi being preeminent. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. And the Philippians gave beyond their means because they gave themselves first to the Lord. So the, you know, the first thing that we see about the Philippians' partnership in the gospel is that 
It is a partnership that is rooted in a commitment to seek first the kingdom of God. Paul then takes their gift to Jerusalem, and from the book of Acts we're told that while he's in Jerusalem, he was arrested and imprisoned and eventually wound up appealing to Caesar. And so now it's while Paul is under house arrest, preaching the gospel to whoever will come and hear it, that the Philippians become aware of Paul's situation and they raise the large monetary gift. And then uh, apparently they also, also will uh, ask him to send Timothy back to help them through uh, the situations in their own congregation. And uh, they sent uh, Epaphroditus, their pastor, with their gift. And Epaphroditus fell ill on the trip, and, but finally made it to Rome. Uh, Paul, however, could not send Timothy, and so sends Epaphroditus back. Uh, and Moises Silver summarizes what Paul is, is trying to do here when he says, How could he convey his great joy for the church's continual participation in his apostolic ministry, while at the same time rebuking them unambiguously for their grave lapse in sanctification. So there's, there, there's, there's been a problem in Philippi that Paul's going to need to address in their sanctification, and, but yet he also wants to thank them. So how, how is he able to express his heartfelt thanks for their costly offering, and yet also discourage them from doing it again, because he's like, I know you can't afford this, so please don't do this again. And how could he report truthfully his own troubles without intensifying their spirit of discontent on his behalf? Because if he, if he tells them all that's going on, they'll be tempted to, oh, what more can we do for Paul? So he's trying to balance all of these. How do I make clear, no, please don't send any more, while dealing with their troubles and uh, also encouraging them. The difficulty of the task, Silva says, that was before the apostle would draw from him under divine inspiration a message full of comfort and joy, rebuke and encouragement, doctrine and exhortation. Quite beyond Paul's own powers of anticipation, the letter he was about to dictate would speak to the hearts of countless believers for many centuries to come. So Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, and he says, with the overseers and deacons. So the overseers, uh, the, sometimes gets translated bishops, episcopoi, were those who exercised the office of rule in the church, while the diaconoi, the deacons, the, the ministers or servants, were those who assisted the overseers in the ministry of the church. It's important to note that here we are at the end of the 50s, the decade of the 50s, and there are already clearly two distinct offices in the church. We're not necessarily given lots of detail about the particular roles and the particular functions of, of what they did, but the titles suggest that the overseers focused on governing shepherding and the deacons focused on service. The, now, the third change to Paul's, to the standard Greek greeting is perhaps the most important. Because he doesn't just say, Kyrene, greetings. He says, Charis, grace. He takes this, it, it's, it's in Greek a very small change in terms of the spelling. But he says, grace to you. And peace, which is Irene in Greek, but shalom in Hebrew, and reminds us that this grace and peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul wants you to see 
that the Christian community is distinct. You are a holy people. You are set apart by God for himself. In one sense, what we saw in, in Leviticus about what it means to be holy as God is holy. What is it, uh, That God's holiness is, is not just that which makes him so distant, but it's also that which impels him to draw us near to himself. And now he has made you a holy people, that he might draw you near to himself. You are a holy people, set apart by God for himself. And what forms you and shapes you is the grace and peace of God himself. And the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul tells the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Uh, This prayer of thanksgiving or reflection on thanksgiving is, is important for us because gratitude is important. It's important to communicate it to one another, as Paul is doing here. But it's even more important to communicate it to God. How, how regularly do you thank God for those around you? If we don't regularly thank God for them, we probably won't thank them very much either. If you're not grateful to God, then you won't be very grateful to one another. But I thank my God. And Paul says, I'm telling you now because I've been telling God about you. And I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When I remember you before God, I'm grateful to him. There's a whole lot of reference to prayer in these verses. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So lots of prayer language. Also, the word all or every occurs four times in verses three to four. All my remembrance, always in every prayer for you all. And if you, if you take out all of the prayer words and all of the all words and all of the prep, prepositions and, and articles, what are you left with? There's only one word left. Joy. Now, this is a theme that will come back over and over again throughout Philippians. Paul always crafts his introductions carefully. His introduction is designed to set you up for what comes next. When he remembers the Philippians, he gives thanks to God and he makes his prayer with joy. He rejoices. He is glad. He he is filled with joy as he remembers them because of, well, because of what? Well, that's that's where he goes next. The reason for Paul's joy is because he is deeply grateful for the concrete expression of the Philippians' care for him because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. As he thinks back to, all the way back to the first day when, all of a sudden I'm blanking on her name. Um, Lydia, thank you. When, When Lydia had invited him in, as when she had invited him in to, you know, as a partner in the gospel, as she is sharing, the word partner, koinonia, is a fellowship, a sharing, a communion in the gospel. You see here very clearly one outworking of Paul's discussion of, of the body of Christ. 
if every part of the body was an evangelist, well, then actually very little evangelism would, would get done. Because each, party, each part of the body has its own function. And when the whole body is working properly, then the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. And that's why Paul goes on in verses 6 to 8 to talk about the implications of this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is going to challenge the Philippians to deal with certain problems in their sanctification. He's going to urge them to fix certain things in the life of the body. And so he gives thanks to God for the evidence of the good work that God has begun in them. God will finish what he starts. And I can say the same thing to you. I give thanks to God with joy for your partnership in the gospel. I'm delighted to see the evidence of the beginning of that good work in you. And I am confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This statement resounds with a confidence that is not complacence. Because Paul is confident that this good work will continue. If God has begun a good work in you, then he will continue it and he will complete it. And so, yes, we should rejoice to be laboring and growing in the body together. But at the same time, yes, there are some things in our life together where we need to improve in our sanctification. We need to grow in our discipleship together. And so Paul's going to challenge us, and we ought to feel challenged because he's going to say to us, there's areas where you need to grow. And he says, it's, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Notice here that this, this grace, you are all partakers with me of grace. Here he's, he's not actually talking about the grace of salvation particularly, although it's certainly related to that. But he's talking about the particular grace, the particular gracious gift of God of partnering in the gospel. For you are all partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are participating with me, Paul says, in this particular grace. And what impresses Paul so much about the Philippians, and which we see, we see it here, but his other letters when he refers to the Macedonians, to the Philippians, are partly also what can show us how much he is impressed by them, is their continued support of him, even in a time when they might suppose that he couldn't do much for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's in prison. How much can he actually do? You've got, you got, you got a missionary who's you know, locked up and can't do anything. Well, do you still keep supporting him? Well, their response is, absolutely yes. Let's make sure that he, we, we take care of him so that he can continue to bring the good news. And he will tell them in verse 12 that the result of his imprisonment has been further opportunity for gospel witness. But they were willing to support him whether or not he was able to preach because they understood, something the Corinthians seem to have forgotten, that they owed Paul their very lives. Without Paul, the Philippian jailer would still be in unbelief. Without Paul, Lydia would have been 
sort of, oh yeah, a God-fearer, yes, but she wouldn't have heard the, the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul replies, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's a great phrase. I yearn for you all with the splankna of Christ. The guts, the entrails, the kidneys. This is, this, this, is, this, this is just, it's the King James said, the bowels of Christ. It's a visceral term. All my innards long for you. I yearn for you with the innards of Christ Jesus. That's how deeply Paul is connected to them and wants to be present with them. And so Paul turns to pray for them because it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, here's where we see how these different aspects of the Christian life work together. It moves, there's an important movement here from love to knowledge to active holiness to worship. The Christian life does not start with knowledge. The Christian life starts with love. What is it that you love? If if your love is not abounding more and more, then it won't go very far. I mean, if you think about in, in marriage, if, if your love is static, if your love isn't going anywhere, well, then it's going the wrong direction. If you're not actively learning how to love your wife better, how to love your husband better, well, then that's not really love. Love grows. Love overbounds. Love overflows. And the Christian life is built on love, that your love may abound more and more. Uh, what Love for what? what love, for, love for whom? Well, this is first and foremost our love for God and for one another. Notice how Paul says it. It is my prayer that your love for God and neighbor, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment because, this is, and this is where knowledge is important. You can't, without Knowledge, you don't, can't go very far because it, if you lack information, you don't know. You need to know God. The men are starting J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, on Tuesday. But as J.I. Packer shows nicely, this knowledge of God is not a bare intellectual knowledge. That's why Paul talks about knowledge and discernment, a word from which we get our word aesthetics. Aesthesis means experience, insight, perception. It's not enough to have a piece of bare information. You have to have discernment to know what to do with it. And then what is the purpose of this knowledge? It's not so that you can be smarter than everybody else, but, Paul says, that you may approve what is excellent. Discernment is important, but discernment takes practice. Knowing the story of the Bible, knowing the doctrine of the Bible is important because it is only if you understand how you fit into God's world, how you fit into what God is doing in history, that you can then approve what is excellent. Because how do you know what is excellent? 
You look around you today, oh, there are people who are... It, it, gets, it gets bizarre when you think about what people are saying is, is the excellent way, is the good way, is... This, oh, everything would be better if we just... I mean, it gets scary. And sometimes, I mean, you, you, there, there are voices coming from all sorts of different directions that are very persuasive. They've got good re- arguments. At least they sound good to us. How do we know? Are they excellent arguments? Is this an excellent way? Is this a good way to walk? Is this the way we should pay attention? Is it who, who? Paul says that we should, that we should, Uh, that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So in other words, knowledge is unto holiness. Knowledge cultivates love and grows love into holiness. Augustine once said that every passage in the Bible teaches us two things, love for God and love for neighbor. And if you haven't understood how this passage teaches you love for God and love for neighbor, then you haven't understood the passage rightly. Talk about a sort of simple, straightforward, hermeneutical rule. Every passage of scripture teaches you love for God and love for neighbor. Now, when I first read that, I was sort of like, ah, that seems like a, you know, where, where do you get that idea? And I was like, oh, right. There was a guy named Jesus who said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Which two commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Well, except for the genealogies, right? Because the genealogies don't make it. No, he didn't say that. Except for the book of Leviticus, because Leviticus is... No. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Augustine was absolutely right. Every passage of scripture teaches you how to love God and love your neighbor. And that's where it's just a question of how can we learn to read the scripture that way. And that's where we need to develop this and build on this and grow this in our lives. So we must see that love is always the starting point. Love is always the place where the Christian life begins. And out of that love abounds knowledge and discernment that results in our ability to approve what is excellent so that we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, This is another point that Paul will make throughout Philippians, that because Jesus has already been vindicated in his resurrection from the dead, therefore those who are in Christ share in his justification now and will be made perfect in holiness for that day. Paul is saying that our sanctification is not yet complete, but he's saying it in such a way as to exclude all complacency. Sometimes when we talk about how sanctification is partial in this life, we can sound like we're saying, oh, well, you know, we sin sometimes. We can't help it. Does that sound like what Paul says here? No, not at all. Because Paul says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, 
And so, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You'll notice, this is, this is not, this is not just a moralistic sort of, just try to be good, try to be, do better. This is a way of living, a way of knowing, a way of walking that is building and growing in Jesus Christ. And as we go through Philippians, we will keep coming back to this because this is at the very center of what Paul wants us to see. Because the growth, the sanctification that Paul is talking about is, is about, is actually a really exciting thing. It's about becoming more and more like Jesus, like God himself, as we grow in his grace. Let's pray together. Father, have mercy on us because our love grows cold and our knowledge does not abound and grow. Our, our discernment go, grows weak and we don't approve what's excellent. We, we approve all sorts of other things. And so we are not pure and blameless seeking the day of Christ. And Lord, have mercy. Help us and by your Holy Spirit, Shine your light upon us that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of your most holy majesty. And we, we, we do thank you, O Lord. I thank you for, for this, your people. And I pray that, that you would help them and help us as we walk together that we might build on our partnership in the gospel that through this, the good work that you have begun in us will be brought to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Grant that we might, that we might be partakers of grace with all those who are afflicted, that we might be an encouragement to those who are, who are beaten down. And may your gospel grow and flourish and increase in us that those who are weak and helpless might find rest in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Have mercy on us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.